those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast, where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author and historian, P.A. Duncan. I thought I'd talk a bit today about history and the study of it since I write historical espionage fiction, a term coined, by the way, by Alan First, who's an incredible writer of espionage-based stories that are historically accurate between the two world wars. So if you haven't read him, give him a try. The last name is spelled F-U-R-S-T. Now, I was drawn to study history as a child, actually, because my father was a history buff, especially about the Civil War. He was primarily interested in the battle tactics, but also in the people, the stories of the soldiers who fought on either side. Unfortunately, he adhered to the revisionist history side of the U.S. Civil War. That is, it wasn't about slavery, but about states' rights. But so-called states' rights included the belief that some people, the rich people, had a right to enslave other people. As I studied history in high school and in college, I recognized exactly what the Confederacy was, a traitorous group of insurrectionists and white supremacists. It's not coincidence that there were so few American flags among the insurrectionists at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, and many more Confederate flags. My view, however, didn't go over well with my father, but at least he did trigger my lifelong love of history. I'd much rather watch a history documentary than a comedy or a romance movie. History has always been a part of my life. I've always loved it particularly from the point of view of the people, learning about the people. I went on to get a degree in history and am proud to still call myself an historian. I taught history briefly before I moved on to working for the federal government. Again, following my soldier father's example by serving my country that way. But I never forgot history. Indeed, one of my first jobs on my agency's aviation safety magazine was to write short aviation history pieces called 
famous flyers or famous flights. This was truly my favorite type of article to write because I could dig into aviation history with the research skills I'd learned. And I found so many fascinating people in aviation, some of whom I had the privilege to meet. That was total nerddom for a history geek. In my history studies, I specialized in Europe, specifically Russia, between the world wars. But I also studied the rise of Nazism in Germany. I had an interest in that because my father fought in World War II with Patton's army. So 20 or more years ago, when I started ranting about how one particular political party here in the United States seemed to be toying with at least the trappings of fascism, I could provide concrete examples. Of course, I wasn't the only one. There were historians and scholars who'd gone further in their history studies than I had, and they laid out the evidence quite specifically. But no one listened, except for the choir to whom they preach, namely other historians. When you study history, you also hear over and over the trope about learning from history lest we repeat it. That's been voiced from various statesmen, from Edmund Burke to Winston Churchill, even philosophers like Carlos Santillana, who allegedly wrote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And this is why some of us study history to preserve the past, the accurate past, yes, but also to learn from it and not repeat some of history's most heinous events. This is why we have a United States Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., so that people can go, people who are beyond the generation of World War II, can go and see accurate, true history and understand that we can't let that happen again. So I'm a believer in accurate history, the history of a country presented with all its foibles, warts, and egregious errors, even the United States. Part of my family goes back in the United States to the colonies, to pre-revolutionary times, 1749, in fact. Members of my family have played small roles throughout all of America's history. The Revolution, War of 1812, the Civil War, and so on. They've participated in the triumphs, of which I am proud, like my dad in World War II. But they've also helped to perpetuate acts of genocide, for which I atone however I can. Any country needs to teach the bad with the good. A country's history should never be, literally, whitewashed. Even though that history may make us uncomfortable, we need to hear it, 
because that's the whole point of studying and presenting history, to learn from the uncomfortable bits so that we don't do it again. In Germany, in present-day Germany, people are taught, students are taught about Nazi Germany, not through statues or naming streets or buildings or schools after Hitler or Goebbels or any of the others, but by studying the history of what the Nazis did. Is it uncomfortable? I'm sure it is to the average German, but it's accurate history because Germany doesn't want to perpetrate anything like that ever again. The same should be true here in the United States. We should want to know about the history of the enslavement of human beings so that we don't at some point in some future say, oh, well, I need cheap labor. Let's enslave some people. They did it in the past and it was okay. It wasn't okay. And if you really study what the conditions of enslavement were like, it will make you very uncomfortable. It will make you cringe. And I hope it does. Knowing that my family owned human beings is disgusting to me. Absolutely disgusting. And like I said, I try to atone for it. It's not my responsibility to. I didn't do it. But I benefited from that privilege, and I should atone for it. And I have my particular way of atoning for it, which I'll mention in a minute. But right now, this subject of do we teach accurate history or do we teach history that doesn't make us uncomfortable has put us in the midst of the latest sweep of banning books. It's happened many times throughout the history of the United States. Now, the federal government has never banned a book. Local communities do. Local school boards do. But that doesn't matter. Wherever it's done, it's wrong. Right now, the book ban of books, fiction and nonfiction, by Black authors who have written the truth about enslavement. Unfortunately, there are some white people who've held on to the false history that the enslaved enjoyed their enslavement, and they all lived happily ever after until that bad old government came along and outlawed slavery. They also don't want their children to feel bad about themselves. At the same time, they don't want to vaccinate their children to keep them from dying, but that's not what today is about. So now, parents who've likely never attended a back-to-school night or who've skipped the parent-teacher conferences because they're inconvenient or who've never attended a PTA meeting feel the need to be consulted on what books their children can read and study in public school. 
My initial response is, if you want that, send your children to that pricey, snobby private school down the road where the principal will cave to your ignorance and ban books. Individual teachers don't select the core books used in teaching. Now, they select ones to supplement that. A state curriculum board does, based on guidelines for what children need to learn at each grade level. And yes, sometimes what's taught may make you feel uncomfortable, but it also teaches you to ask questions, to think critically. But some people can't abide that because they don't want you to question what they're doing. Right now, it's not simply banning books. Some people want to eradicate certain ones. Back in the 20s and 30s, last century, 1920s, 1930s, Adolf Hitler developed a detailed and intricate mythology about the racial superiority of the German people and everything in Germany Music, art, literature had to conform to that mythology. There could be no questioning of this alternate history he'd created. The same was true in the Stalin era in the USSR. In both countries, so-called decadent art was removed from museums. Only pure Germanic or Russian music could be played, and books books that did not portray German history as a history of the master race were banned. But that wasn't enough. Those books had to be eradicated because if people learned about Germany's true history, that there was no such thing as a master race, they would begin to question the authority of Hitler himself. The brown shirts and the SS removed certain books from libraries and bookstores, even private citizens, fearful of having someone see those books on their shelves, turn them in. And what did the authorities do with these books? Some of them classics of world literature and philosophy. They burned them. They made a propaganda show of burning them. There is a famous picture of one such book burning, a smoldering pile of books glowing in the night, a crowd of people, some soldiers, a lot of civilians, giving the stiff arm salute. That was in 1938. In 2022, in fact, a little more than a week ago, a mob of people in Tennessee burned books they decided were offensive to their whiteness. Books by Toni Morrison, by Maya Angelou. Someone posted a picture of the bonfire, and when I saw it, my aging historian's brain pulled that 1938 picture from my memory, and I compared them, and they were almost the same picture. That made me sad, but more than that, it made me angry, hence this rant. 
we have slipped further down the slope of autocracy. And I hate repeating myself. In my fiction, I use historical events as a backdrop or even as a springboard for a story. I've written particularly about the dangers of right-wing extremism, racism, and white supremacy here in the U.S. because that is what will drag us into autocracy. That is what threatens our democracy far more than left-wing anything. Indeed, one trick right-wing extremists use is to portray their opposition as more extremists than they are. But in the U.S. today, what right-wing extremists consider communism or socialism, without knowing the meaning of those two terms, are basically centrist progressive views, views and policies that exist in most of the modern countries of the world, in Europe, in Canada, in England. You see, as with Germany, as with Stalin, as with Russia today, right-wing extremists in the U.S. want to return to an imagined utopian past, one that never existed, that only existed in their minds, one that's white, one where women and blacks know their place, where LGBTQ people stay in the closet. And if anyone from any of those groups question that or try to fight against that, they deserve the punishment meted out to them. My father saw what could happen when that was carried too far, when he rolled across Germany, across Europe with Patton's army, and saw concentration camps. He fought to keep that out of the United States and was proud of that. And I will fight too, with my words, with my books. So ban mine, if you want. I'll take the publicity from that. Starting on Saturday, February 12th, the ebook of my standalone novel, Love Death, will be free for five days. My Valentine's and book birthday gift to my readers. Love Death deals with some history, too. Collective farming in the old Soviet Union, recruiting of spies, the Berlin Wall, the Prague Spring, the leftist student protests across Europe in the, in the 1970s, a divided Germany, and the origins of a nerve agent that showed up in modern times. Because Love Death spans around 30 years, it was satisfying to work that much history into it, as well as featuring some real-life historical figures. So give it a try for free, or gift it to a special friend for Valentine's. There's a hint of romance, too. 
I'll post the link to the ebook in the description for this episode. And don't forget my ongoing giveaway of the Reader Magnet short story, Out of the Ordinary, which introduces my upcoming new series, Meeting the Enemy. Meeting the Enemy also deals with history, with 9-11 and its aftermath, as experienced by my two characters, Mai Fisher and Alexei Bukharin. And this short story is somewhat of a prologue to the first book in the series, entitled Terror. Again, I'll put the link to the giveaway in this episode's description. And finally, buy a band book, any band book, and read it. See what people are trying to hide from you. Commercial and rant over. All right, let's read a bit from Love, Death. I'll set this up for you. Mai and Alexei have confirmed that the formula an asset procured is for a deadly nerve agent that the Soviet Union claimed it had stopped producing. However, this formula is for a deadlier version of the organophosphate compound and they discover where it's going to be manufactured in an East Berlin plant that supposedly makes agricultural chemicals and pesticides. Love Death, Chapter 17, Temptations, West Berlin, 1989. This feels wrong. Three sets of eyes settled on her, two sets broadcasting hostility that she dared to speak, but not her partner's. His were devoid of emotion, as usual. What feels wrong about it? he asked her. My Fisher said, it makes no sense. A facility that size a facility that's supposedly gearing up to produce illegal chemical weapons in the guise of agricultural pesticides would only have ten security guards. The West German on the team, known to them only as Kurt, curled a lip and said, They must the facade of an agricultural facility maintain. Too many guards raise suspicion, not too few. Devon, Another Brit, like Mai, said, We've wrecked that place at different times of the day over the past two weeks. All we've ever seen is ten blokes. Mai said, Yes, all we've ever seen is ten. But it doesn't make sense there aren't more. She didn't look at her partner, Alexei Bukharin, because she didn't want him to feel obligated to step in and rescue her, as he was wont to do. Mai Alexei said, tone neutral. You're going to have to be more explicit then. It doesn't make sense. Mai shuffled through the blueprints of the factory until she found the plat she wanted. This building, she said, pointing to a rectangle, is the only one we haven't been able to get a clear view inside. Along this wall, no discernible windows. I suspect it's a barracks. The size of it? It could hold up to 40 men. It is storage, said Kurt. 
We don't know that, Mai insisted. We don't know it is a barracks, Kurt said. Forty guys cooped up in a barracks, Devin said, shaking his head. They'd go nuts. Someone would sneak out for a fag or to see a girlfriend. We've seen no activity in or out of it. These blueprints only show surface structures, Mai said. We know of at least one tunnel between the factory itself and the administrative building. What if there's a whole network of them for moving men and equipment and illicit chemicals around? A man on the inside would have told us, Devon said. Mai's turned to shake her head. His principal assignment is in the administrative building. He's admitted he's rarely been to the factory himself, and when he has, it's only been to the surface structures. Remember, day or night, all we've ever seen is ten guards. They can't be the same ten day and night for days and days. They'd have to have shifts, and we've never seen any of the security guards actually exit the facility. We have seen them change the shifts, Kurt said, his voice impatient now. I reiterate, we haven't seen guards leave or arrive, only technicians or scientists. If this facility is constructing a lab to manufacture Novichok, extra security has to be there, and not merely men to patrol the grounds. They also have some sort of rapid response team for any emergency. Again, she pointed to the rectangular building on the blueprints. We know the function of every other building except this one. It makes sense. It's a barracks. Kurt and Devon looked at each other, their smiles more like indulgent smirks. Kurt said, Sweetheart, you are not here to sink, yeah? Don't call me sweetheart, Mai said, and I'm here for the same reason as you, to destroy the part of that factory that's going to produce Novichok, what happens if we go in to do that and find ourselves up against that rapid response team? Very not your head, sweetheart, Kurt said. We under the control have this. You know you sound like a German Yoda, right? And don't fucking call me sweetheart. Kurt leered at her. You're a feisty woman. Are you that way in bed too, sweetheart? Kurt, enough. Alexei said. Mai looked at Alexei, sending him a warning. Don't fight my battles. He ignored her. Fisher is an equal member of this team. Unless you want to start calling us all, sweetheart, don't call her that. Fisher has been my partner for a decade, and I've learned to trust her hunches. You want us to accept a hunch? Devon asked. I said I trusted them, Alexei retorted. Whether you do or not is up to you. I've come to trust her intuition because she is usually right. Usually. I don't keep a running count of how many times listening to her intuition was the right thing to do, but she and I are both here, aren't we? That was his command tone, and even mine knew better than to say anything. After a moment's thought, Alexei continued, We have plenty of time before the operation. Let's do a final recce of the place with particular attention to the building Fisher has suggested might be a barracks. If it's storage or a barracks, let's see if we can confirm its true purpose. A waste of time, Kurt said with a dismissive wave of his hand. 
he could be discovered. Alexei lifted an eyebrow. Are we keeping you from something more important, Kurt? No, but that time would be better used for another simulation, yeah? If you were the team lead, that would be your decision, but you're not. I am. To that end, tomorrow, we'll conduct another reconnaissance with a focus on that building. Alexei looked at Kurt and at Mai, and she knew what he was going to do. Fuck, she thought. Fisher and Kurt will do the recce, Alexei said, and both of you will be professional. Am I clear? I haven't been unprofessional, Mai thought, but she responded, of course. Kurt's smile was fake when he said, naturally. In the large house the team had occupied, Mai Fisher had a bedroom on the first floor, well away from the others on the second. When a mission involved operatives unknown to her or Alexei, they often didn't acknowledge their relationship. Lately, that seemed to bother Alexei more than it bothered her. She didn't mind sleeping apart from him on occasion, and it wasn't as if he didn't know where to find her. Unable to sleep, Mai lay on her bed and stared at the ceiling lost in the dark. She couldn't get that building out of her head. But another recce tomorrow would be useless. During the day, the factory management would be more careful about hiding the plant's illicit projects, and they could only see so much through high-power binoculars and spotter scopes. The satellite imagery had been inconclusive. If someone was going to determine whether that building was a barracks or storage, he or she should do it at night. Mai sat up and checked her watch. She had time enough, and no one would be the wiser. Mai redressed in all black, down to her soft-soled shoes. From her duffel, she took her night camouflage makeup kit, Using the bathroom mirror, she applied the dark brown, deep blue, and black creams in the usual pattern. Of course, if the police spotted her, the camo paint would require a good explanation. Better to avoid the police, then, she murmured. All lights off to let her eyes dark adapt, she pulled on a black watch cap and black gloves. When she was ready, she crept from the house, and ducking from shadow to shadow, made her way to the directorate's secret tunnel to East Berlin. The tunnel came up into the directorate's East Berlin station, and security there was more than happy to get her close to the factory. While three operatives waited a half mile away, pretending to fix a stalled engine on their vehicle in case the police came along, Mai darted from cover to cover until she reached the hilltop overlooking the pesticides plant colloquially called the Annex. So, Mai returns from her nighttime excursion to the chemical plant, thinking no one's the wiser, like she expected. But with Alexei in the mix, she should have known better. Love, Death, Chapter 19 Understandings. West Berlin Safe House. 
In the deep dark before dawn, Mai Fisher let herself back into the safe house in West Berlin. She'd snapped a lot of pictures, and even though the West Berlin station had a quick developing machine for the miniature camera's film, it took a while to process and print the photos. The camera had worked perfectly. Two rows of ten double bunks, forty sleeping forms beneath blankets. A wall of the building held racks of rifles, handguns, and ammo magazines. Mai smiled, anticipating shoving the pictures under Kurt's nose. Her steps silent, she opened the door to her first-floor bedroom. A silhouette of someone in her bed, stopping her. Mai suppressed a sigh. She'd known she'd have to face the music anyway. Sooner was always better than later. The door closing and the lock engaging made Alexei stir. He sat up and turned on the bedside lamp. Voice low, he said, I wonder what husbands who aren't spies say to their wives who sneak out of the house and come back at an ungodly hour. Mai removed the photos from her vest pocket and handed them to him. I was right, she said. He shuffled through them and didn't look at her when he asked, To whom did you think you had to prove that? The team? She hesitated, but added, You? His head snapped up to look at her. I supported you. Why would you have to prove it to me? She honestly didn't have the answer to that, other than, Perhaps I had to prove it to myself. His eyes narrowed at her. Never go against your gut, he said. Him and his Moscow rules. It's your operational antenna, she finished. Remind Kurt of that. Alexei stood and pocketed the photos. Did anyone see you? No. You're sure? Relatively. Why relatively? She pushed away her resentment at the question and replied, A guard stopped for a smoke near where I was hiding, but gave no sign he saw me. The recce tomorrow will tell us if they've beefed up security in response to any concerns. And during the recce later today, we could have discovered the true purpose of that building. Mai shook her head. The only visual access to the interior was a small window in a door at one end. The only way to see inside was up close in the dark. You should have run this by me. Here it comes, she thought. Why? So you could say no? Maybe I wouldn't have said no to a reasonable argument in its favor. You would have said no. When he didn't refute her, she knew her intuition was right. Again. A couple of things occurred to me during my excursion, she said. A hint of a smile moved his lips. That brain of yours never stops. All right, enough for this week. Hopefully there'll be no need for another rant next week. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Don't forget, February 12th through February 16th, Love Death will be free for your Kindle and Kindle app. Give it to yourself or a friend for Valentine's Day. I know, I'd much rather have books than flowers. Flowers make me sneeze. Remember, 
to keep your guard up, not only against COVID and all its variants, but book burners too, which means you need to be vigilant and keep an eye out for spies. The proceeding is a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Join us next week for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast.